You know, it's I, I actually call long-term welfare dependence on a on a capable individual a poison. Is it on? Look, I'm going to shirt front, Mr. Putin. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. No, wait, it, it is on? Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I don't like it. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Is It On? BuzzFeed Australia's political podcast. My name is Alice Workman and joining me every week from Sydney is Mark Stefano. Mark, I have a really important question for you. Okay. Have you seen any throttle bottoms around this week? Throttle bottoms. Did you just make that up? Throttle bottoms. No, I didn't. It's my word of the week. A throttle bottom yeah. is an inept politician. It says who? <laughs> the dictionary. <laughs> Is it really? So it's not some sort of like old wives saying or some British ism that you've pulled out of nowhere. Who told you this? I was having a chat with one of the other people that work uh, in the gallery around estimates, and it is used to describe uh, people that are kind of useless and incompetent and purposeless uh, that work in public office. So, you know, you could use it to describe uh, public servants if you wanted or politicians, but we were using it to describe politicians. There you go, a throttle bottom. we've had a lot of public servants in the house this week because of estimates. Yep, a throttle bottom. Hmm. Do you think that you'd um you'd call our guest on the podcast this week a throttle bottom? No, no, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that to senior government ministers because that's what we spoke to. We spoke to a senior government minister. That's right. I sat down with Human Services Minister Alan Tudge this week. Yeah, and most people, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, might have heard of Alan Tudge's name. He is the minister who's in charge of Centrelink. That's our welfare office here in Australia. He's uh, been in the news a lot recently for the Not My Debt scandal, the automated debt recovery program that sent out hundreds of thousands of letters asking people to pay back debts to Centrelink, but... There's always a twist. In some cases, those debts weren't real and they didn't actually owe anything. Mm, and he's also going to be in charge of the new drug testing of people on welfare, which uh, the government announced a few weeks ago in the budget. So we had a chat to him uh, about that plan and whether he thinks young people really are doll bludgers. You know, some people call it payday. You know, another term which I hate. It's not payday. It's not the same as a job. It's a welfare payment. So we'll be chatting with Minister Alan Tudge in a few minutes. But first, it is the first of a two-week estimates block in Canberra, which is where public servants from all around the country come to Canberra and have to answer questions about their different departments. So it could be government departments such as health or finance or attorney generals or environment or communications. But it's also different groups like the Australia Council or the NBN or the ABC. Mm. Mm. And uh, it is probably one of the loosest things that happens in <laughs> Parliament all year. That's right. But it actually wasn't the main political news of this week, as everyone, I'm sure, has heard and seen on TV um, across the last seven days. The Manchester attacks and the findings from the coroner's inquiry into the Lint Sydney Cafe siege have dominated the headlines. And it's a bit strange because when there are big external events that are happening, uh, our federal politicians are really distracted and they're sort of focusing on those wider stories that aren't just focused on the Beltway and what's happening in Parliament House. So we thought we'd 
pretty much devote this podcast to all the other issues that you may have missed this week. The, the stories that really have been uh, undercovered, maybe, because we've been focusing on other news stories. But budget estimates really is a strange time in Parliament House because you've got uh, senators, so you've got politicians and public servants who have to sit in these rooms without windows from 9am in the morning till 11 at night answering all sorts of questions, legitimate questions about how much things cost, but also absurd questions like whether or not they like the TV show Antiques Roadshow. Do you Um, like the TV show Antiques Roadshow? I've never watched it. (laughs) No, neither have I. But I I think people people swear by it. (laughs) Um, So anyway, so this is going to do Fast Five about the stuff that's popped up in estimates this week. Mark, what's your number one? Uh, the number one this week has to be Pauline Hansen questioning agricultural estimates about halal slaughtering Alice. This is one of the great moments in estimates history. We had Malcolm Farr from news.com.au tweet that it was one of his favourite ever moments, and he's been in the press gallery for quite a time. Pauline Hansen doesn't really always show up at estimates, but she was asking agricultural estimates earlier this week about slaughterhouses, specifically halal certification ones. She said some people had spoken to her about cattle, which were alive, when they were slaughtered. And look, I can't do this justice. Just listen to this clip and the way the public servant tries to explain to her that when cows are stunned, they are still alive. It really is some incredible audio. Um, just bring um, your attention that I ha- it has been brought to my attention that under halal certification, mm. these cattle are actually still li- alive when their throats are slit. So, then, so can you explain then yes. in halal certification what happens with a cow? Right. Um, Barbara, yeah, sure. okay. um, Barbara Cooper, uh, Assistant Secretary, Meat Exports Branch. All cattle halal slaughtered in Australia are stunned prior to slaughter. Well, uh, I have been advised that it is not the case. In, um, in one of the slaughterhouses, the cow, the cow is still alive when its throat is slit. Animals are alive when they've been stunned. It's just that they're unconscious. So um, animals will be slaughtered when they're alive, but they will have been stunned first. So they're not, they're not like you and I at the moment. They're like you and I when we've been knocked out. So, Mark, the cows are alive before they are dead. <laughs> Is this correct? Breaking news. Before the cows are slaughtered... They are alive. Confirmed. The big news out of Canberra this week. And I just... It was just a really endearing moment from the public service as well. I just love the public servant trying to explain to her that... Not like you and me. You know, if you and me were knocked unconscious. Oh. And uh, they were sort of treating her and talking to her like she was... uh, Like a little schoolgirl. It was really endearing. Alice, what's your number two of the Fast Five this week? Okay, this one is a little bit odd. It's about, um, it all revolves around Fiona Nash, who is the Deputy Nationals Leader, and she's a a minister that holds uh, three other portfolios. So she's been caught out calling herself the Acting Deputy Prime Minister when the Prime Minister is out of the country. Now, let me explain the flowchart to you. If Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull Mm -hmm. is overseas, Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce becomes the Acting Prime Minister. So therefore, his normal title of Deputy Prime Minister is vacant, correct? So it turns out that Fiona Nash has been calling herself the Acting Deputy Prime Minister 
and issuing press releases using that title, even though the title of acting deputy prime minister doesn't exist. It's not a position that you can appoint someone to. That's awkward. That's so awkward. And then it turned out that when Barnaby Joyce was in Fiona Nash's role before he got appointed to leader of the Nats, when he was deputy leader of the Nats, he used to do it too. He used to call himself acting deputy prime minister. And so he was the one that told Fiona (laughs) Nash that she could do this. So the weirdest part is, even if this was a real title, which it definitely isn't, she wouldn't be the right person in order of the succession to do it. The official order is Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce, Attorney General George Brandis, Foreign Minister Julie Bishop, then Fiona mm. Nash. She barely makes the top five, Mark. She barely makes the top five. Is George Brandis number three because he's the leader of the yeah, Senate? Yeah. Is that the reason it's why? Cause it's because he's leader it, of the Senate. Yeah, right, um, okay. Anyway, so Labor got all angsty and they're like, well, you just can't appoint yourself Deputy Prime Minister, ministers just can't go around making these decisions. And then George Brandis, being <laughs> the head of the, the the law of Australia, said, well, actually, in the Constitution, there's no recognition of the Prime Minister or the Deputy Prime Minister. There's just the recognition of ministers. And like most things at Estimates, we all oh, agreed that classic. this whole discussion was a waste of everyone's time and taxpayers' money. And we have all agreed <laughs> to never, ever talk about it ever again. Okay, what is number three? Number three, Alice, this week, there were some really barbaric images from the Indonesian province of Aceh. They hit Twitter, and if you, like me, um, were sensitive to this sort of stuff, it was quite shocking. Uh, Two men were lashed with canes dozens of times after they were allegedly caught having sex back in March when vigilante enforcers entered their home and filmed them. The punishment was doled out under Sharia law in Aceh. It led to Foreign Minister Julie Bishop getting on the front foot, and she said she saw the video of the caning and raised, in quotes, serious concerns with Indonesia. And it's a very important diplomatic neighbour of ours, so it was an interesting development. Liberal MP and gay man Trent Zimmerman, who sits on the backbench, he's the member for North Sydney, he took over from Joe Hockey, he had very strong words as well. And independent Senator Darren Hinch, who is pretty outspoken, former media broadcaster, said Australia should actually cut off its aid to Indonesia over the canings oh, until this sort of thing stops. So I would just say, watch this space. I mean, a very serious story this week, but interesting that quite a few federal politicians did speak out on it, especially because considering that our relationship with Indonesia is so checkered in the past. Yeah. Alice, what's number four this week? Okay, number four, let's talk about the national anthem. So I've got two little okay. things here. First up, there was, um, there's been a campaign to change the national anthem and make it more inclusive um, by Victorian Supreme Court Judge Peter Vickery. Now, his version... Um, would add a new third verse to the anthem that would mention Uluru, the dream time and respecting country. And it would change some of the lyrics. It would remove the line for we are young and free because he argues that many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders find that phrase hurtful and it's difficult for them to stand when the anthem is being played or sung, let alone sing along to it. And so he wants to change for we are young and free to in peace and harmony. Now, now the... Commonwealth owns the copyright to Advance Australia Fair and the Prime Minister has said no, he doesn't approve this new version. But instead, what they could do if they wanted is it could be sung as a patriotic song at certain events, but they wouldn't be allowed to call it Australia's national anthem. They'd have to call it a version of Advance Australia Fair. So it's kind of like someone doing a cover version of a song. Um, But he hasn't said 
what those kinds of events it could be sung at could be. They'd have to be a huge groundswell of public support before this could ever happen. Um, but LMP Queensland Senator James McGrath issued a two-word press release on, on the movement to change the anthem. It just said, heck no. <laughs> Uh, which I think is the second shortest press release I've ever seen. Um, the shortest one was when Labor's Anthony Albanese issued a one-word press release when the uh, chairman of Sydney Airport retired. It just said, good, which was very funny. <laughs> um, but the other anthem thing I just wanted to say quickly is, um, as well as rejecting uh, the the recognition uh, inclusion anthem, the Prime Minister also formally issued a rejection to a petition this week to change Australia's national anthem to Heya. The Outcast song from 2003. <laughs> okay, number five. I want to do a classic Alicism. Wow. Wow. ABC Estimates. I mean, it's always one of the most fiery and broken sessions in the Estimates. This week, it was so cooked that you, me, Lane Sainty, our fellow uh, BuzzFeed reporter, were just absolutely glued to it. It featured quite... I would, I, yeah, like I actually think I've actually seen two hours of the most ridiculous session of Parliament in my life. Like I, I was a little bit taken aback by just how stupid the whole thing was. Um, do you know what? It, you know what? First of all, it featured questions about whether the kids' show behind the news, which is a news program for children, was sympathetic to ISIS, ISIS, the Islamic State, whether a kids' show was making a people sympathetic to ISIS. There was also a discussion about whether there were too many British shows on the ABC. That was Green Senator Scott Ludlam, and he brought up the fact that quite often you'll be just like flicking through the channels on a Saturday or Sunday, and it should be like repeats of QI and Antique Roadshow. And it turned out Antique Roadshow got everyone going because a whole bunch of liberals were like, we love Antiques Roadshow. Again, this is your taxpayers at work, taxpayer money at work. And so did Pauline Hanson. She was like, I love Antiques Roadshow. So Pauline Hanson, come in spinner, she gets really angry about Aboriginal-only applications for jobs, which the ABC has in its bloody charter. And this is the absolutely stunning confrontation between Scott Ludlam and Pauline Hanson about the ABC's Four Corners recent episode into the One Nation Party. It got a bit punchy and really, it might even be moment of the week. Roll the tape. Then you might like to explain to me then why was One Nation targeted in the Four Corners interview and also in the 7.30 report just recently. Does it look like you broke the law? You have actually... Because you seem to have broken the law. Excuse me, I'm asking questions. Now, this week, Mark, you published a story which was a deep dive into the top politics stories people have been sharing online since the budget. What was the top story that people have been uh, sharing amongst their friends? Yeah, so I used the online social monitoring tool called BuzzSumo. BuzzSumo doesn't have any relation to BuzzFeed, but it's this dashboard that you can get a subscription to and it allows you to go through and it, it, you can actually enter all these keywords and it shows you of a certain time frame what are the most shared stories. So I sort of set it to the last three weeks and I downloaded the most top 100 most shared stories. And the top one by a long way was the drug testing for welfare trial. If you actually combine that with the other welfare crackdown stories that were on the top 100 list, more than a quarter of the most shared stories in the last three weeks have been about welfare. So welfare cheats and dole bludges was what people were talking about online. Yeah. So we thought we'd ask Human Services Minister Alan Tudge, the guy who's in charge of all of this, 
why there was so much interest in the government's welfare crackdown. Minister for Human Services, Alan Tudge, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. G'day, Alice. Now, this is going to sound like a very strange question, maybe mm. a bit basic. Um, you're the Human Services Minister. Yep. You talk a lot about Centrelink and welfare. There's yes. also the Social Services Minister who talks about Centrelink and welfare. What is the difference between your two jobs? What is the Human Services Minister? Well, we, Christian Porter, who's the Social Services Minister, and I work absolutely hand in glove and the two of us look after the entire welfare system. He has more um, control over the policy, the rules, if you like, and most of my responsibility is in the implementation of those rules. So I have direct responsibility for how Centrelink operates, how the Medicare offices operate, um, how all the payments are done. But I also have some policy responsibility as well on particular areas. At the end of the day, we work very closely together. Uh, we work as a team, and I think that works well. So people would probably know you best, most recently, as being in charge of Centrelink's new automated debt recovery system. Yeah, some people would know me because of that. I mean, um, I've also been in charge of this cashless welfare card, Mm -hmm. which has received a lot of publicity over the last year or two. We've had trials up and running, and now we're going to expand that. Um, Yes, they know that I'm in charge of Centrelink and some of the debt recovery issues that we've been doing when people have received overpayments or committed welfare fraud. They might know me because of that. And before then, I I did a lot of Indigenous issues, actually. Worked very closely with uh, Prime Minister Abbott. I was his parliamentary secretary before becoming Human Services Minister, largely talking about Indigenous issues. And you're a relative newbie to Parliament, really. You were first elected in 2010. I was. Quick quick rise to power for for Alan Touchy-Touch. Well, (laughs) thanks, Alice. It almost... (laughs) Listen, it's almost seven years now. Mm. Sometimes it just feels like yesterday. Other times it feels like an eternity. And, um, but, you know, I, I, enjoy, I enjoy my role. I enjoy my time here. I, I feel like I can make a difference to people's lives. And ultimately, that's what you're here to do, um, to try to improve Australia, make a difference to people's lives. And, and I'm in a portfolio too, which does have a direct impact on many people. And um, I think that the policies which, put, which we're putting in place are designed to help people get back into work and, of course, also designed to protect taxpayer money. Mm. Well, let's talk about another uh, big story about Centrelink that's been around since the budget, one of the bigger things to come out of the budget, uh, which I think was a shock to some people when they heard it at first, was drug testing to 5,000 people who sign up to New Start and Youth Allowance. I saw that analysis. Well, yeah, so we did a news mm. analysis over the last three weeks of stories and 25% of stories shared online are about welfare. Why do you think that welfare stories resonate so much with the Australian people? I think particularly, and I know the number one story was the um, the trial of drug testing new welfare recipients. And I think in part because people can immediately understand it, they get it, and for some t- for in fact for many years a lot of people have been suggesting it. And also because I think that for a lot of workers these days, it's part of their everyday job. Mm. You think about if you're in the construction industry, in the mining industry, in the transportation industry, you're in the defence force, you're in the police force, any emergency services, you're in border protection, you work for Qantas, drug testing is a part of your everyday employment. And so for those people, I think, well, if you're on welfare, maybe you should also get drug tested because you're going to struggle to get a job. You certainly won't get those jobs if you've got a drug problem. And so I think that it's something that people understand and I think that most people actually think it's not a bad idea. Yeah, well, the polling says that a majority of people do support it, but there is still a lot of concern out there, especially amongst people that listen to BuzzFeed, 
for, I don't know, whether it's just the idea of forcing someone to pee in a cup. Why do you think that people are concerned by it? Um, I, I, I don't... Uh, listen, I have my... I have my suspicions. I think some people have almost an ideological objection to it to say that, you know, some people believe that welfare is a human right, unencumbered welfare is a human right, there shouldn't be any conditions attached to it. Mm. Um, If you're on unemployment benefits, hand over the money, that's it, full stop. I take the view that um, we're very fortunate in this country to have a great social security safety net, but... Unemployment benefits are there to support you when you don't have a job and to help you get back into work as quickly as possible because it's in that person's interest as much as it is in the community's interests. And if you've got a drug problem, then we want to know about that because you're going to struggle to get work if you've got a drug problem. And these trials have been designed to um, identify people who may have a drug problem and to help them get off drugs. Mm. That's what it is about. You actually don't lose money here. And this is an important point. If you are found to test positive the first time, then you'll be placed on some sort of cashless cashless welfare system. So the amount of cash which you have available is limited and therefore, of course, you can't purchase drugs if you don't have cash. We'll then ask you to drug test for the second time within 25 days. You'll know that in advance. We'll tell you. Now, if you test positive 25 days later knowing that you're going to get tested then, the chances are you've got an issue. And at that stage, we'll direct you towards um, health assistance. So we'll direct you towards a GP to have an assessment and to work out what's going on and what sort of treatment you might need. Mm. And that Why do they have to test positive, before they get tw- test positive twice before they get treated? If they test positive the first time, isn't that a sign that someone is using illegal drugs and they should get help? Well, listen, I don't want anybody to be using illegal drugs. Um, And certainly we know that, um, you know, no no, no one, when they first take drugs, sets out to be an addict. But all addicts at some stage started taking drugs on a so-called, and I hate this term, recreational level. Mm. Um, So I've got a pretty strong line actually on this. People should not be taking drugs, particularly some of the toxic drugs like ice. And... um, uh, but the first response, which we're saying, is that you've got to get off this thing. And if you've got an ability yourself to get off it, then that's great. And we hope even by the fact that you know you may be randomly tested will actually change some people's behaviour. And that'll be, in, in some respects, that's a measure of the success of a trial. If we find that, mm. in fact, the number of people that we find test positive is lower than what the um, science would say. Yeah, because the department has the projections, don't they? Yeah. about how many they think. Well, because there's a lot of there's a lot of um, good research now, and um, it's five hundred people, weird, isn't but there's it? The scientists and through the police force and other scientists basically they analyse the wastewater, mm. and so through that they can identify very you know, with pinpoint accuracy, how much drugs is in that community, how much drug use is in that community. And some places have extraordinary high rates of drug usage based on that sampling. But that sampling doesn't say that the people that are using the drugs are on welfare, though, does it? No, it doesn't. But what we also know is that people on welfare are 2.4 times more likely to be on drugs than others. About a quarter of people on unemployment benefits took drugs in the last 12 months. It's quite an extraordinary number. That's according to the drug and um, what is it? The drug and alcohol 
household survey from 2012, so it's a few years old, that data. We've got some new data coming out soon, actually, on that. But an extraordinary number. And um, as I said at the outset, if you've got a drug problem, it's going to be hard for you to get a job. And ultimately, our ambition is, A, get you off drugs, Mm. but most importantly, get you back into work and be stable again. If you're Um, so hardline against people using drugs, why not cut them off welfare? Why put them on a cashless card because if you if you don't turn up to job interviews or if you don't turn up to send link appointments you can get your welfare cut why not the same for people that are actually committing a crime and using illegal drugs well at the end of the day we're after behavioral change and even if you don't turn, turn up to your appointments you you actually get a couple of opportunities before you cut um before your, your welfare is cut and we can talk about the strengthening of those measures if you like um in some respects, we don't want to cut people's welfare payments. We want them to do the right thing so that they maximise their chances of getting work. All the research shows that if you actively um, look for work, you uh, prepare yourself and actively engage in the interviews, then the chances of you getting a job are so much higher. And, of course, it just makes common sense mm-hmm. um, versus if you don't do any of that. So that's what we want people to do. Mm. And but I think there's a stereotype that is portrayed in the media of younger people who are maybe considered doll bludgers, who smoke pot, who sit on the couch eating cheesels, playing video games. If they're the people that you're targeting, would it not make more sense to cut them off so that it stops the habit? Um, I will say, let me first of all address that point that people have this sort of stereotype. Um, Actually, when you look at the data, there's say 760,000 people on unemployment benefits. Um, about two-thirds of those people never miss an appointment, constantly do the right thing. They're hungry to get work, basically, and typically they find work, about two-thirds. There is a persistent group, though, of about 100,000 people who constantly miss appointments, constantly don't turn up to important things like interviews, constantly miss the meetings they're supposed to attend, constantly fail to do proper job search. Some of those people have probably got serious issues in their lives which we don't properly understand. We want to and try to help them with those issues. But there's at least about 40 or 50,000 people who, in the, where there's nothing that indicates they've got things going on in their lives. They happen to be, guess what, they do happen to be younger people under the age of 30 and they happen to be more men than women. What, what, happens, to your, what happens if you test positive? If you're, say... A 20-year-old kid who um, tests positive for marijuana and you do the right thing, you get put on the card, the cashless card, you eventually find a job, you're off Centrelink for 30, 40 years, then something happens later in life, you have to come back onto Centrelink. Is there something that will pop up on your digital file that says this person tested positive for marijuana when they were 20? Is it going to be on their digital file for life? Yeah, the, it, it, this is important, that the information, uh, if you test positive, that information will only be used for the particular purpose, which will be laid out in the Act of Parliament. And the purpose being um, to, uh, for the purpose of this drug trial. So it won't be provided anywhere else. And some people have asked me, well, will it be provided over, say, to the police? Will it be provided to another agency? And the answer is no. No, the but will it... But, just use the, yeah, that. but it'll be on their Centrelink file, correct? So if any time a Centrelink person talks to you, they can see it there on your file. You are on this program because you tested positive for drugs. Yeah, and this will be... Um, 
laid out in the Act exactly how that information is used and where it's kept. And there's some very mm. strict rules about even how much information people can access. Um, but is, isn't and levels it... of access even within um, even within Centrelink. Sure, but if you are someone Centrelink caseworker or you have to deal with a Centrelink client, isn't it a basic piece of information you'd need to know? So surely it would be accessible to people that work at Centrelink that it would be on your the, file. Well, certainly at the moment we know if they've used drug taking as a as an excuse for not turning up to an interview, that will be on their file. At the moment, by the way, that's that's seen as a reasonable excuse for not turning up to an interview. We're getting rid of that reasonable excuse. That's no longer going to be counted. What's a reasonable excuse, sorry? Well, because... Um, and if I should, you are on I, drugs. I should explain that, um, you know, you've, you've got these obligations if you're on the dole. Yeah. You know, you get unemployment benefits and you're required to... Uh, Look for work. You're required to, to go to meetings with your job service provider. You're required to go to interviews if you get interviews. And you're required um, to take a job if it gets offered to and you. And if you're required to take a job if it gets Even offered to you. Even if you don't want to. Abs- well, if it's offered to you and it's suitable for you, absolutely you should be taking that job. Yeah. And our new rules are we will cut your payment immediately if you don't. Um, because, you know, any job is better than being on welfare. Even if you're maybe very overqualified for that job, take that job, you're going to have a better chance of getting the next one. Um, the reasonable excuse regime comes in because unexpected events come up, of course. You know, you could have been in a car accident, so you can't make that job interview, and we want to take that into account. Of course we do. So there's a list of reasonable excuses which are taken into account. Um, one of those has been, by the way, that you've got a, you know, that you've had a drug and alcohol problem. So you ring up Centrelink and say, well, I'm sorry I didn't take that job interview because... Um, you know, of my drug problem. Well, we're getting rid of that because what we want to identify is to say that's, well, that's not acceptable. What, what is going to be acceptable is that if you've got a drug problem and you're going into treatment, that can be part of your job plan in essence. Mm. Um, you might not have to do any job search, but what you're going to have to do is, is get yourself fixed. So is you get can treatment. skip the drug testing and just go straight into treatment. That's what we want. Well, that's what we want people to do now. And that's yeah. what people might... Um, um, listen, anybody who's on drugs and has a problem, we want them to get treatment. Yeah. And we've put in hundreds of millions of dollars of more money um, for treatment services. Um, you know, it's $300 million in the ICE package, most of which went for treatment services. Before then, there was another $300 million um, from memory. So hundreds of millions of dollars for that. So that's what we want people to do. Get treatment. Yeah. Get off these wretched drugs. Because one of the things in, that was outlined in the, in the drug testing measures was that they that data risk profiling would be used to identify the people who would be put in the pool who would then be selected for the testing. And one of I asked someone what that meant and I was told that it means that if someone a Centrelink caseworker or a frontline worker thinks you have a drug problem, then they they that's a data risk that they've identified. So you could be chosen to be randomly drug tested based off an assumption that someone has that you have a drug problem. Wouldn't it be better to intervene and say, we think you have a drug problem, go to treatment, rather than embarrass them through a test? Well, and, and, and I suppose in essence, across the board, that's what we're going to be doing. So if a person rings up and says, hey, I didn't do that job search or I didn't take that interview because I've got a, a, drug, problem. a drug problem, then we're going to say, I can't accept that as a reasonable excuse, but I want you to advise me that, you've, that you're going to get treatment and then come back and discuss with us that program of treatment, and we can um, revise your job plan to take that into account. That's what we want them to do. Mm. And um, um, ultimately to get themselves off 
that that problem. It doesn't it doesn't help them though, just by sort of for us to sort of say, oh, you had a drug episode. Okay, no worries, you didn't turn up to interview. Yeah. Okay, good luck for the next time. Who, who does that help? Right. That that doesn't help the individual mm. um, at all. So we want to, you know, we want to see that behavioural change. We think some of these measures will, you know, stimulate people to thinking about the the problem which they might have and getting assistance. That's ultimately what we want people to do and to get off drugs. I want to just ask you kind of the broader question now. We spoke to the Treasurer after the budget, generally about kind of the young people issues that were in the budget, housing affordability, this drug testing stuff, um, university changes and things like that. With the, the, the young people that you deal with through through DHS and Centrelink, do you think that there is an air of entitlement around young people in Australia or young people on welfare? What, what I mean, what do you mean by that? Do you think that young people on welfare feel like they're entitled to the money and are, maybe that's why they're upset at the idea of drug testing? Oh, there, there's absolutely some people like that. Um, absolutely some people like that. I mean, I, I have people who who say you know, in reference to, say, this cashless welfare card, you know, how dare you tell me how to spend my money? Mm. And I'm just saying, well, actually it's... um, You're entitled to that payment, but it's actually taxpayers' money which is being provided to you because you're down on your luck at the moment. And we can put, in some respects, conditions upon it if we choose to do so, which we do. Our conditions are you've got a job search, you've got to take the job, and you've got to do the right thing. I think that's perfectly reasonable in exchange for receiving um, thousands of dollars each year in unemployment benefits. So I think a lot of people understand that. A lot of people understand there's mutual obligation. You get a payment for nothing, but in exchange you've got to do the right thing. Some people don't like that, though. They do see it as... Some people call it payday. You know, another term which I hate. It's not payday. It's not the same as a job. It's a welfare payment, um, which ideally, if you're an abled, capable person, is a short-term welfare payment because it's just there while you're out of work. Obviously, if you've got a, um, a uh, you know, a serious disability and you're on a disability support pension or the like, it's it, it there is to mm. um, assist you pay for those necessities. Um, because you're unable to work. And that's that's a great element of our system as well. Sure. I think that a lot of young people look at, say, the 2014 budget, less so the last couple of budgets, but feel like they're being unnecessarily targeted for budget savings. Yeah. Uh, well, if you look at, say, the housing affordability package from this budget, um, one of the big ones was aimed at first home buyers. Mm. Um, in essence, it enables pe- enabled people to save more quickly for their deposit up to 30% faster because you get these tax incentives, tax breaks yeah. um, by putting money into a dedicated account and therefore not paying, you know, your full income tax. Yeah, but do you think it's fair that like maybe in the more in the welfare crackdowns and less in the housing affordability and the increasing fees in universities that young people are shouldered with the debts that have been incurred by older generations? Oh, I, I think that is a serious issue which I was going to raise. That is the thing which I think that young people should be genuinely concerned about is the, the fact that uh, we've had uh, deficits since Rudd and Gillard blew the budget and that debt is being passed on to the next generation. 
But it's your government it's, that's choosing to pass it on to the younger people. Well, though, isn't no, it? no. Well, we're not. I mean, as you know, when you know, I've been on your programs before, Alice, where <laughs> we've talked about all the savings measures which we're trying to do to get the budget back into balance. Everybody mm. knows that the coalition always does the hard yards to get the budget back into balance. And often we get criticised for it. But you know who the major beneficiaries are of that? It is the young people. So that they're not paying higher taxes down the track, paying off our debt which we, we accrued today. Mm. They're the beneficiaries. And they're the ones, it's young people who should be most angry about, um, about Labor's debt and deficits. They should be most angry about it. And therefore, your debt and deficits as well? Well, you, as you know, we've or done so angry much budget repair deficit. work and we'll be back in surplus in two years' time. We'll be back in surplus of two years' time, despite the fact that Labor Party opposed almost tooth and nail every single budget savings measure that we've put through. And, and that's a good thing, because once your budget is balanced again, then you can start paying back that debt. You can't pay back the debt when you're still running big budget deficits. And then you can start spending some money, some more money in your portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> well, we already spend $158 billion a year in mine and Christian Porter's portfolio. And that's about 35% of the budget, about a third of the budget. And that grows, it's been growing by about 6% per annum in terms of nominal growth rate. That's, that's one of the reasons, you know, it's, it, it, it's one of the reasons why we've been looking at the welfare expenditure as well. If you've got a third of your budget growing faster than your overall economy is growing, you've got a problem. And so there's a real fiscal challenge there, but we're getting on top of that. The more important challenge, actually, is the, the moral dimension of welfare is that a life of welfare dependency is not much of a life. In fact, it sucks the life out of you. You know, it's, I, I actually call long-term welfare dependence on a, on a capable individual a poison. You know, because it really... Uh, you know, it demotivates you, it sucks the life out of you, you can end up with mental health problems as a result. And, you know, some of the Indigenous leaders have been most, um, most strong on this point, people that I've worked with in the past, like Noel Pearson or Gullaroy Unipingu up in the Northern Territory. You know, Gullaroy says he's one of the most respected Indigenous elders in the Northern Territory. He says that ultimately welfare kills, such as its all-pervasive ability to suck the life out of individuals. And so he's, you know, they're one of the they're one of the most strident people who's sort of saying you've got to get people, capable people, off welfare and into jobs, because a life on welfare is not much of a life. Mm. Well, we won't talk about job creation. That's another topic for another time. But my final question is: uh, our podcast is called "Is It On," which is a reference to leadership spills. Uh, right. So I just we are literally sitting above oh, the prime it, minister's it, office. Well, I thought you were going to so talk I about thought, Bill Shorten there for oh, well, a second well, in terms I'd of Anthony you. Albanese and Tanya well, Plibersek. We're all positioning. We're all positioning. Well, I can tell you what you see: Anthony Albanese absolutely positioning over the last couple of months because he knows this is his opportunity, and if he misses this opportunity, it'll probably go to the next generation. So he's been making a couple of very strategic speeches deliberately differentiating himself. He's sort of, you know, out there sort of showing how good he is, what sort of a leader he can be. He's more popular in the opinion polls than Bill Shorten. But Tanya's more popular than him. And Tanya's more popular again. So, you know, is she the dark horse? It's going to be an interesting one to watch. Are you a Betty man? Who'd you put your money on? (laughs) Is Bill going to go to the next election or will we see Albo? I think there is – I think these leadership rumblings are just going to increase and increase. And at some stage – 
Alan the Tudge numbers will be the show, next Prime Minister of Australia. If the numbers show <laughs> that Bill Shorten still, you know, significantly lags behind Malcolm Turnbull in the preferred Prime Minister stakes, then I think it'll be on. Well, you heard it here first, you Alan heard Tudge. It here. Thanks so much for joining <laughs> us on the podcast. Thanks so much, Alice. I like the woman. I like the woman. Mark, Alan Tudge's office is literally on top of the Prime Minister's office in Parliament House. Looking out his windows, you can see the Prime Minister's courtyard where he holds a lot of press conferences. And one of the funny things that that the staff said to us when we were in there was if they're feeling particularly angry with the PM, they can stomp around. But I think the building is a, is a bit too... He's a bit too well designed for, for any stomping to be heard. Yeah, yeah. Alan Tudge, he's just above the Prime Minister's office. A very ambitious fellow from Victoria. I think that um, people always talk about Alan Tudge being a, uh, a future, very important member of a Liberal government in the future. Maybe even Prime Minister. Who knows? Okay, well, we've just got time for a super quick binge before we wrap things up this episode. Mark, what story didn't get enough attention this week? Uh, it actually didn't get nearly enough attention. It was actually just written up by AAP, who, if you don't know, they're the wire service at Parliament House, and they do an amazing job because uh, one reporter from AAP sits in on on all of the estimates hearings. So a lot of the times you might miss something and AAP has actually covered it. So My Bin Juice is something that just AAP covered. It's about Peter Dutton's fake refugees announcement earlier in the week. It stole all the headlines last Sunday across TV and radio and online. Peter Dutton, the immigration minister, claimed that there were more than 7,000 asylum seekers living in Australia who hadn't applied for refugee status. It also, the government, gave them those asylum seekers, a hard deadline of October to apply, basically saying if they if they don't, they're going to be chucked out, right? In estimates this week, Immigration Department Head Mike Pizzullo, so he's the most senior public servant in Peter Dutton's portfolio, said at estimates that at the current rate, even before the fake refugee deadline was announced earlier this week, all the applications would have been in on time. They were already coming in at a good rate. He actually used a cricket metaphor that was shared with the Green Senator Nick McKim, saying that if the rate of applications was staying at the current, in quotes, run rate, and it kept up, they would have them all in by October anyway. So why the need to set a deadline and call them fake refugees in the media, knowing that that would totally and utterly become the biggest story of the day last Sunday? Well, Mike Bertolo replied, and I quote, to make sure we just keep the run rate going. Cricket and throwing around language, demonising refugees. It is the most Australian story, and it did not get nearly enough attention this week. Alice, what's your binge juice? Mark, you won't bloody believe it, but I also have an immigration story. In Australia? I don't bloody believe it. That has a sporting metaphor attached to it as well. What a bloody coincidence, mate. Okay, so my story is about... um, a Labor politician, a Liberal politician and a national politician who all agree that Australia should increase our refugee intake. So I'll take you back to earlier this week. Labor MP Tim Watts moved a motion calling on the government to dramatically increase the number of refugees that are resettled in regional and rural communities by private sponsorship. Now, he thinks that Australia is failing in its obligations in the International Refugee Challenge, especially in regards to the area that's just around Australia, Southeast Asia. Um, because what 
to give everyone a quick rundown of what's happening in the refugee challenge at the moment. There's 65 million people who are displaced all around the world. It's the highest number since World War II. Half a million of these people are in Southeast Asia, really close to Australia. So while the number of refugees is going up and the amount of wait time is going up, going down is the number of resettlement places in third world countries like Australia. And that's mainly because one of the biggest refugee takers, America, uh, under the Trump government, they've decided to cut the number of people the US is letting in from 110,000 to 50,000. So Let's quickly talk about what private settlement is. So currently in Australia, 1,000 refugees can be sponsored by a person or a business or a community to live in a regional or rural town. Mm -hmm. And whoever sponsors them, they front up the cash for their resettlement. So it's 1,000 at the moment. Well, this week, a Nationals MP, so a member of the government, said that uh, Andrew Broad, who's from Victoria, he wants that number to be increased from 1,000 to 10,000. He thinks that humble country folk, like the people in his electorate in Victoria, um, are really keen to get these people in. You know, it's not the stereotypical image of Australians and and coalition voters not wanting refugees in the community. These people are adding, uh, in his area, adding millions of dollars to the local economy because they're taking jobs that Australians can't take or, or won't take. And so he's saying that, you know, these country people are putting up their hands, screaming to be part of the solution and not of the problem. And that he thinks his colleagues in the in the coalition should be less apprehensive about talking about taking more refugees in. And the most amazing part of this motion to increase refugees came from Liberal MP Russell Broadbent. Um, he made this amazingly moving speech that we've put up online, and I really think that everyone should take a minute to go watch it. He said first up that he couldn't stand up and say that he can't give his opinion because his party would be upset with him for agreeing to increase the number of refugees. And instead of cricket, Mark, he used a football metaphor. And he said, in Southeast Asia, there are five times the number of people that go to the grand final waiting in camps in horrible conditions. And he and then he said, the number of people who buy a pie at the MCG in a 20-minute period is greater than the number of people Australia resettles each year under private sponsorships, and that is outrageous. Wow, that's a lot of pies. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's it. That's my binge juice. Hey. And I think that's all that we've got time for this week. I want to say big thank you to our producer, Nick Ray, Nicola Harvey, Richard James, Peter Holmes, Lane Sainty, and the whole pod team. Um, we want you guys to get involved too. Uh, so tweet at us. I'm at Workman Alice. Mark is at Mark DeSteph. Tweet us and let us know what you think we should be talking about or who you want us to interview next. Um, you can go to buzzfeed.com slash is it on or you can subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app and write Mark like a little love message hey. and like a little review. Um, and then next week, we're going to have another Cracker episode out. And uh, is it true? Are the rumours true? Is Gallery Whispers going to be back next week? Gallery Whispers will be back next week. I promise you. I promise I promise everyone. I promise okay. everyone that. Okay. All right. We believe you. We believe you. Now, Mark, Alan Tudge reckons it could be on in the Labor Party. What do you reckon? Is it on? I think it's more on in the Labor Party than the Liberal Party at the moment. There you go. That's what I think. That's what I think. Ooh, Labor chaos. Yeah. Look, I think there are a lot of Labor MPs who are being a bit cheeky and the cheekiness is starting to grow and grow. It's, a, it's quite strange. Chaos. Chaos ensues. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.